And now we're going to pray for Peter as he comes up and talks to us. And, and then we'll listen to what God says through Peter. Father, pray that you'll speak to us all now. Give us all soft hearts, open hearts to hear what it is you have to say to us this morning. And may we, each one, go away from this place um, changed because we've learned something new. We've been touched by you, Lord, and, and we move on in our faith. So, Father, we pray for Peter. Give him um, the words to say and the wisdom to say them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Steve, and welcome to you. At one time, my Sunday school class was taught in an area curtained off at the back of the church building. And it was a space that was used by other groups. And occasionally, Christian magazines and papers were left there for others to borrow. And on the back of one particular magazine was a, a Bible search page. And as a child, I would take this home to do. There were 20 Bible verses listed together with the books where each was to be found. And the idea was to find the chapter and the verse to complete all 20 references in the shortest time. My Bible was a very basic one. In the 1950s, there were not the aids that exist now. I had to search by reading. And at first, the task was quite a taxing one, especially when searching through the longer books of the Bible. Yet that helped me to learn their names and how they are arranged. I began to recognize the structure of the books and the themes they contain. And in, term, in time, I, I learned how to interrogate the verses so that I could skim read, looking for key words or phrases in the verse I was trying to find. And I think I've had much practical benefit as a Christian from doing those Bible searches in childhood. This morning, we're looking at another of the encouragements to the continued outworking of our Christian faith from the book of Hebrews in our series, Holding Firmly to the Faith. So, taking up your Bible, please find the book of Hebrews and look for these words. I won't give you the reference just yet. See if you can find them. References are helpful, aren't they, to find our way around the Bible. Each of this collection of books was originally written on scrolls or sheets of parchment in a continuous script. Centuries ago, Jewish scribes, as they copied out the text, began to put spaces at the beginning and end of paragraphs. There were no chapter divisions. And over time, several scholars devised schemes to help them in their personal studies. But the first scheme that to use chapters that was adopted widely was devised by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1227 to 1248. 
So over a thousand years, Christians were reading the Bible without knowing how to find their way around it quickly. Of course, only a minority of people could read. The division of chapters into verses came much later. In 1551, a French printer, Robert Estienne, put numbers into the margin to help him in his work as he prepared the Greek New Testament. And these two schemes are almost universally accepted to help navigate the Bible text today. So come to church to hear God's word and to gain an education as well. Well, if you haven't found it by now, it's chapter 4 and verse 11. Imagine for a moment you'd never read these words before. Let's interrogate them. What are they about? We find that the writer is making an urgent appeal to a group which includes himself to take action. The word therefore tells us that we've gone too far. We've already missed an earlier reasoned argument. So we will have to go and look back. But what are we to look for? There are two things that require our attention. What is meant by that rest? After all, it's the object of the urgent appeal. And who are those who've set such a bad example of disobedience that we must take warning? So let's go back in Hebrews chapter 4, looking for the word rest. The preceding verse, verse 10, informs us that it is God's rest. In verse 9, it's called a Sabbath rest. In verse 8, there's a reference to Joshua, who had not given them rest. He failed to deliver it. Verse 5 has a quotation announcing, They shall never enter my rest. And verse 4 links that rest with the seventh day, when God rested at the completion of the work of creation. And verse 3 contains the same quotation as before but also comments that entering into rest is wrapped up with faith. And then back in verse 1, entering rest is still available because it is attached to a promise. And if we continue to scan back, we find it again in verse 18 of chapter 3, and once more in verse 11. And we recognize the quotation that we've had already. But now we see that it is part of a much longer quotation that begins at verse 7. Now the word rest does not appear in the book of Hebrews until this point. Nor does it appear after the verse that we've been interrogating. So it's just concentrated in this 
section. If we do the same with the word disobedience, working back from verse 11 of chapter 4, we, we come to it in verse 6. There were people who did not enter rest because of their disobedience to the gospel, to God's good news preached to them. We have to go back to chapter 3 and verse 18 before we find the word disobey again. And that introduces us in verses 16 to 18 to identify those people who were led out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. This is the people that set the bad example of disobedience. And it's here, as we look at the text, that we pick up words such as rebelled and sinned. And we find that the writer is commenting on that very long quotation that starts back at verse 7. And so as we interrogate our verse, we keep coming back to the beginning of this section. And these words verses 7 to 11 of Hebrews chapter 3, are familiar to us. They're the words we spoke out together earlier in this service, in our responsive reading of Psalm 95. But we don't have the whole psalm here. We have only the last section. The earlier verses, which are quoted, uh, provide an opportunity for us to encourage one another to join in the praises of our great God and Savior. Let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Why? Because he is the great God, the great king, the great creator, the great shepherd of his people. As a child and teenager, sorry, it's another bit, I sang in my local church choir. And every Sunday morning, it, the service included the singing of Psalm 95, because it is a heartfelt invitation to worship the Lord. And this practice is not only part of the Church of England liturgy. For centuries, Jews have welcomed the arrival of the Sabbath at their Friday evening meal by reciting this same psalm and incorporated within both Christian and Jewish services of worship is not only the invitation to join in God's praise, but also a warning to pay attention to God's word. Essentially, we do not come together to worship God because it makes us feel good, because it lifts our spirit. It may do so. That may be a, a byproduct, but we worship God because he is worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. It is right and just for creatures to worship their creator with heart, soul, mind, and strength because of who he is and because of what he has done. And for those same reasons, we are bound to pay attention to what he has to say to us. This part of the psalm 
begins with the word today. It challenges us as we come to worship. Don't go through mere ritual today. Don't allow anything to distract you today. Today, God wants to speak to you, and you must pay attention. For 3,000 years since this psalm was first penned, God has been saying, today, if you hear me speaking to you, don't close your ears, don't close your mind, don't harden your heart, or else you will be following the example of those who were disobedient and you're liable to suffer the same consequences. Let's quickly just review the history of the people God led out of Egypt, the children of Israel. Israel's family had lived in Egypt for over 400 years, originally driven to Egypt as refugees in a time of severe famine. The welcome and the favor they received eventually ended. And as this God-fearing family grew, they were viewed as a threat to the host country, as aliens often are. And as a result, they became enslaved until God called Moses to be the champion of their freedom. He won their liberty and set off with some one and a half million people to take them back to Israel's original homeland, although in truth it was God who led them. Led them through desert terrain, led them to and through the waters of the Red Sea, gave them laws by which their lives should be governed, met their needs for food and water, promised to give them rest. Some two years after leaving Egypt, they arrived at the border of the land, only then to refuse to go into it. Instead of rising to the challenge to trust their God, to help them to complete the journey and enter into the promised rest, they rebelled. But in truth, this was not the first time. Time and again over those two years, complaints were voiced against God and against Moses. As a result, that generation was condemned to wander in the desert for nearly 40 years. All the rebels died without ever entering their rest in the land promised to them. Please allow a short diversion. Christians today often wish that they saw more powerful demonstrations of God at work in the world, in healing and so on. And they believe that many would believe in Jesus if only they saw miraculous events linked to Jesus' name. The people that left Egypt under the leadership of Moses witnessed 
a number of mighty demonstrations of the power of God on their behalf. Ten devastating plagues were inflicted on the Egyptians, but they were protected. The waters of the Red Sea parted and they passed through. Pharaoh's army followed and was engulfed. They were supplied in the desert with water and food. They stood terrified at the foot of a mountain that shook with the holy presence of God. Despite all these things and more, this privileged people proved to be faithless. Diversion over. This book is written to Hebrews, that is, to Christians who were culturally Jews. As news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus circulated, many Jews accepted him as their long-awaited Messiah. And it was not long before a false teaching began to disturb the faith of some, teaching which said that the rituals and the practices of the Jewish law should still be observed, even if they were Christians. And the writer reasons that in every respect, the new and the living way of Jesus is superior. And here he takes the familiar words of the psalm that they had sung every Sabbath evening and pleads with them to pay attention to what God is saying today. They're not to follow the example of disobedience of that earlier generation and turn back now. They must continue to press on, to complete the journey of faith, and so to enter God's rest. So let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Now let's focus for a short time on this concept of rest. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, the writer uses rest in several ways. Firstly, it's described as God's rest, the rest he entered at the conclusion of the work of creation. The early chapters of the book, first book of the Bible, Genesis, describe six days of creation. Each creative act fits within a daily cycle of evening and morning. There are days of forming and days of filling up what had been formed. But the seventh day 
has no time boundaries. You might say it's a day without end, a period of rest in which God is no longer creating, but neither is he inactive. God's rest is not a period of doing nothing, but of working with what he has brought into existence. From time immemorial, the pattern of a seven-day week had been followed by the whole human family. And God especially required the family of Israel he'd rescued out of Egypt to work for six days and rest for one as a constant reminder of their creator and their savior. This was the Sabbath rest. It was not a day of inactivity for them either, but a day of different activity with a focus on prayer and worship. And thirdly, entering rest is associated with faith, while falling short of it is associated with unbelief and disobedience. Of those aged 20 and above who were led by Moses out of Egypt, well over a million people, only two were allowed entrance into the land God had promised them. Just two lived by faith and obedience to God's requirements. One was Joshua, who succeeded the disobedient Moses. He led those who had not been counted as responsible for the rebellion, who were but children and teenagers at the time, and brought them into their allotted territories. Yet even Joshua did not deliver a full and complete rest. There were among that younger generation many who were unbelieving and disobedient. And the subsequent history of this people, recorded for us in the Old Testament, shows only too well that periods of political stability and prosperity occurred only as Israel's leaders lived and ruled by faith. And fourthly, the day that never ends is forever today. As long as there is a today, there is an opportunity to enter God's rest by faith. It was so when Psalm 95 was written. It was so when the book to the Hebrews was written. And it is so now, to this very day, as we also have recited these words together. The promise of entering God's rest still stands for any who have yet to take Jesus as their Messiah, their Lord, their Savior. Let me read the opening verses of chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. 
But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. And now let me return to the starting point at chapter 4, verse 11. I realize I've, I've been speaking a word which from my, the Bible I normally prepare from, which is not the one that perhaps appears uh, in the readings. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. I think the word perish may come into um, more recent versions. We now know whose example of disobedience should give us warning. We now know something about that rest into which we are encouraged to enter. So now let's just consider the focus of the writer's urgent appeal. Addressing the whole group, he writes, let us make every effort to enter that rest. They were to journey together by faith and to persevere until the work they were called upon to do was complete. Now, is it legitimate for us to take to heart words written over 1900 years ago when addressed to people of a different time and a different culture? Can we apply this challenge to ourselves? Well, Christians have always said yes to that question. Christians have always believed that this collection of books which makes up the Bible has relevance to each and every generation at whatever time, place, or cultural background they may come from. It is God's word, and it continues to speak to us. In fact, the next couple of verses after our key verse say this, from verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me draw to a conclusion. Each and every day is a new today to live the life of faith and to enter into God's rest. It's not for the faint-hearted, but for the faith-emboldened. This is something for which we have to make every effort. It's that important. Faith is not only a matter of words, it is a matter of action. But I want to make this clear. It's not an appeal to my or to your exertion for our own personal benefit. We are in this together. Let us make every effort to enter that rest. Why? So that no one will perish or fall by following 
their example of disobedience. This is where the individual comes into the picture. We have to be diligent in performing our collective responsibilities towards each other for the spiritual good of each one. We have to look out for each other. Here at NCBC, those in membership commit themselves to taking some measure of responsibility for one another as they work together to represent Christ Jesus in Norwich. And during this pandemic, the Christian community has been forced to operate differently. All ministry, all fellowship, all care has had to be attempted while at a remove from each other. And therein lies the danger that someone feeling unloved and uncared for could slip away because they have been overlooked. When we are able to meet together again to worship and work together free of all restrictions, who will be missing? More seriously, who may have turned their backs on Christ and given up the faith? I know, of course, it can be argued that anyone feeling unloved or uncared for should take themselves in hand and initiate loving and caring actions to others and not wait to be ministered to first. But that assumes that we all have a measure of good mental health and of strong spiritual health. Let us make every effort so that no one will fall. Let's operate by this rule, all for one and one for all. So can I appeal to you again to create opportunities to serve others and to be willing to receive the service of others in return. One last thought. It's been my experience that Christians are very good at social service, but not so good at talking to one another about matters of personal faith. It can be a sensitive issue. But in the final analysis, we can only share in God's rest through faith, a faith which takes us through all of life's ups and downs and endures to the very end. We must overcome any reticence to talk about personal faith, which is our key to our relationship with God. So today, let us make every effort to enter into God's rest. And today, let us make every effort so that no one will fall. Amen.